in the grand words of Garth Logaway, immortality. Hi, I'm Jeremiah Sheehan. This is the Sounder Heart Podcast. Joining me today is... I'm Dave Clark, laughing at Jeremiah. I'm Tim Foss. And Susie Rance. Yeah, I didn't I didn't prep them for that at all, but um hopefully that was that was a cold, cold open. We don't do cold opens very often. So, uh anyway, Sounders are CONCACAF Champions League winners. It's a little surreal. It's a little uh it's it's a moment that I think a lot of us have probably dreamed of and it felt uh very hard to uh get our arms around and to think is a real possibility. And then all of a sudden it felt very real. And I think the buildup to this was appropriate because I, I do think we got to kind of marinate in the idea of it a little bit, but I'm just curious of having, hearing all your experiences with this because you were all there. I was there as well. I've written about it a lot, but you know, but I want to get out of the way and I want to hear what your experience like was for the day. Let's just start with Dave, your thoughts on the game. What was it like for you? It was kind of, it was still different than MLS Cup 2019 in that um, it took more effort for people to be there since it was midweek. And so I thought that that had a a cool little vibe to it. I've still got to write some on that. I liked uh, having what might have been up to 10,000 Pumas fans in in the stadium because that applied some kind of like counterplay. And just the, energy um that energy level was higher than i have ever experienced for soccer um it was intense for a very long period of time there weren't many phases of the game where in the stands where it felt to me like um the energy like people needed to to refresh or anything like that it was just the entirety of the experience was 90 minutes of, of, of an intensity that, um, well, it's not going to be matched because how do you match the first time winning a continental championship when you've already set an attendance record at basically the capacity of the stadium? I don't know how you can get bigger than that. Tim, you want to, you were in the press box with me, so it was maybe a little muted, but I'm still very curious. Well, I think to to Dave's last point there, like the added context of the first time an MLS team does it against a Pumas team that really seemed like they they needed that trophy as much as the Sounders did, like against another team, the vibe might not have been quite the same, but like I I wasn't able to be there at the 2019 MLS Cup, so this was the first time I'd really experienced, you know, this scale of a cup final at our stadium. And I got to the stadium at five and walked to go pick up my credentials and was walking through the, you know, the North Plaza as Pumas fans were marching to the stadium and chanting and singing and like from that point it was clear that and I think it carried through the game they the fans wanted to win but they were there to have a good time like they were partying and I think that really contributed to the way that the the environment felt the way the game felt 
um it it was so cool the the way like i know we've written on the site about the the little earthquakes that happened being able to feel the stadium shake in the press box when that first goal went in was unbelievable the whole thing was incredible yeah i think just adding to what's already been shared um i thought that we had pumas fans directly behind us and they were just absolutely fantastic and i feel like everyone i've talked to had pumas fans right behind them yeah and everyone (laughs) i think had a great time yeah exactly and they've all said the same yeah but go ahead Oh, and I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely the loudest I've ever heard away fans in, in a match. I just think like everyone said that added so much to the environment. I'll be honest. I was going into this game feeling like, oh my God, everyone is saying the Sounders are going to win. And I was feeling like it was overhyped, like scared for that reason. I just, there was so much added pressure because there was so many people talking about this. And I don't know if that like fueled the fans at all, but in addition, just because like we knew how big this moment was. Um, But I found myself multiple times in the game, like just sitting there and like in awe of all of the people and the sound and like, it sounds so cheesy, um, but like, we are so freaking lucky to be Sounders fans. Like, I that's I thought that so many times in the game. Um, it, I just it was amazing. It it was. I think I I'll echo all the things that you said. I'll add that going into Lumen Field and seeing it full like that, and and seeing you know when when the tifo comes up and hearing the roar of the crowd. I by the way I love that countdown thing. Like I I think that that should be adopted in MLS. I think I love the countdown where I go like countdown to kickoff. Like I think I, I like cheesy or not. I think that's a cool little, that was a cool little thing for, uh, for this game. But in any case, I, it is a reminder. And I, and I think back to MLS cup, like even if we only fill that stadium once every few years, it's so worth it. It's, it's, you cannot tell me that, playing in a, tw- a packed 25,000 or even 30,000 seat stadium every week would be better than playing in a packed 68,000 seat stadium, like century, like Lumen field. And it, and just the way it envelops you, the way that it, the, the sound just feels so full and rich and, and it is an atmosphere that is world-class. Like I, I don't think anyone could experience that game and come away thinking, Oh, I've, I, like too cool. I'm too cool for this. Like it's impossible. And, and I think that it's, that it only happens every for big games like this, I think makes it even more special. And I was joking with someone in the press box, how, you know, you you could never, you couldn't ask for anything more than this. And I said, well, I suppose you could ask for it every week. And they said, well, but would you want this every week? And I had to, and I, and they, and I thought about it and they're right. Like there is something really extra special about, packing in that stadium when it's when it's more rare and i and i think and i and i maybe even come around to the idea that if you can't sell it out every every time like making sure that is like the the lower bowl is always full yes it would be we i would love to have the hawk's nest full every time but in some ways i almost wonder if it's better to not have the upper deck open 
unless you can sell it out. Uh, that's that's maybe a little too uh, modern football, but it it does add to the atmosphere when when it feels like every seat is is filled and everyone is there is engaged. And I mean, yeah, it's a cup final, but that was great. Like I I I I was great. It was it was a it was it was absolutely a, a top ten soccer experience for me. Uh, on the field, the Sounders did their part too. It should be said. I think that they, uh, there, there were some moments, especially early on where, you know, knew who goes down and you're like, Oh, maybe this isn't great. And then Joe Paulo goes down, down. And I will admit when Joe Paulo went down, I thought, you know, maybe it's just not in it today. Maybe this is, <laughs> maybe it's not going to happen, but uh, you know, I thought the Sounders maintained their play uh, even like, I don't know that there was a huge difference in their play uh, with and without Joe Paulo, at least on Wednesday. And when Raul Rui Diaz scored, it was, I mean, I, I think in some ways it was even a bigger relief than Kelvin Leardham's goal in 2019. Yeah. We looked over at our neighbors as soon as Raul's goal, because it wasn't really pretty. Um, and we're like, it doesn't matter how I just like, let a weight off and um you know you celebrate with everybody nearby you but it that's when it started to feel like even after losing a guy who at one point was a defender of the year candidate and another who was a finalist for mvp losing those two at the same time and you know the backup is uh i love kellen Rowe, but for an athlete he's an over the hill utility guy who's been used a ton. Um, and then to put in a 16 year old as the other replacement, um, I think it's reasonable, you know, it, it would have been reasonable to be like, well, you're, you're right. It's, it's not the time. And then that goal happened and everybody decided again, it is actually our time because a goal like that happens to the fortunate. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah I think, um having to sub, like use two sub windows so early definitely had me concerned um and i um i was actually sit i was like across the stadium for raul's goal and at first i'm like screaming for a handball from across the field cuz that's all i could see and i couldn't even see the ball go in the net until everyone was celebrating and like dave said wasn't pretty in in the moment but um yeah I think they responded so incredibly well it did seem like um when Vargas came on like I I saw a lot of his teammates kind of trying to direct him a lot at first like it seemed like he was really trying to figure out his positioning a lot but I thought he settled in so quickly which is just absolutely incredible for being put in a situation like that 16 16 year old Obed Vargas in case you somehow didn't know that but (laughs) it's it's just it is a remarkable thing that you you take out your team MVP you replace them with a 16 year old and somehow the level of the of the of the play doesn't decline too much uh Tim what do you think was that was that shot from Raul was that on target I I think it was I don't know that it matters that much it does remind me a little bit not only of the Kelvin Leardham goal from 2019, but uh, I I don't remember which game. Maybe the Leon game, the Leon home game, the Nico's first goal, where 
he took a shot it got blocked and deflected back to him he took another Mm. shot and that one got deflected and like looped in uh that you know maybe it's not the best looking like the goal itself is not the best looking Raul's goal the play leading up to it was so good that like any unprettiness of the goal itself is balanced by the play that led to it um but it's so clearly you know not that they were lacking in chances created but it so galvanized the team and acted as a catalyst going into halftime immediately on the back of that and being able to you know re re-solidify themselves i think Having that goal, I think, allowed the Sounders to not be too worried about the injury issues. Like Susie, though, I was I was almost more worried about having burned two substitution windows than I was about necessarily losing those players. Because I, I was just thinking, like, they probably had a whole plan for how they were going to use subs. And you blow two of your sub windows. Like, they're, they're, they weren't going to sub anyone at halftime. It was funny. I heard some people in the press box. Oh, should they use a sub at halftime? It's like, why? Just so you can burn they another use one? Just so you can use another window? I don't understand the reasoning here. Uh, Tim, you heard people talking about that, right? Yeah, people in the press box were talking about a lot of things that I don't they, know made a ton of sense. Yes, there were. I, I love that they had to burn two sub opportunities due to injury. And then still were able to use the last one as like a, a, call. a victory <laughs> yeah. cigar. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was great. And and you know, speaking of whatever you may have thought of that first goal, the second goal, the the absolute majesty of it, I think mm. really erases any any doubt that the Sounders were capable of putting together pretty play. Uh it Every every piece of that goal is is like just textbook, and and I know when I saw Jordan rounding the corner and streaking in, I'm thinking, oh man, just like you got you have Nico, you have Nico, find Nico, and then as soon as Nico got it, I'm like, please one more pass. Sure enough, that's what it was. Susie, what what do you think of that? What what, what are your thoughts on that goal? I mean, I'm still oh, watching God. it. Because- it was- so pretty yeah I I remember like maybe like in the five or ten minutes before that they tried multiple times to get that same ball to Jordan and it was Mm -hmm. like just off just off and I actually turned to my seatmate shout out to Danica um and I was like they are going to get him one they are and and lo and behold they did I I mean I love everything about that goal I I also love just like how easy Raul made that finish look going near post instead of far post and just like that instinct. I just think that says so much about him and like how he shows up in big moments. I think that could have easily been a, a save in, in different circumstances. Um, so the finish was the topper on top of just a beautiful all around play that started, I think with Rusnak, right? Yeah, it did. Yeah. He, he, it would, if you want to go all the way back, what I thought was kind of funny was that it actually starts with an awkward headed clearance uh, by Obed Vargas. He's it, it's like, I think there's like a deflected cross and it. And so it's kind of got a weird spin on it and he tries to head it out and he just sort of hits it straight up. And the Pumas uh, midfielder tries to trap it and he can't really 
control it and then which allows Rusnak to pick it up and sort of do his little his little thing but it was yeah Rusnak was the was really the one who started that play and and it was just it was just textbook and you know Rusnak I I think it was he didn't get an assist he didn't get a goal but he had absolutely key plays on all three of the of the goals he had you know the he slices into the box and then puts in a cross that he actually said today he's like well maybe it was like a shoss like he implied that he might have been actually shooting that which i thought was kind of funny um but anyway it looked perfect to to ariaga and aria saw feet uh to tap it back to rui diaz and then of course he had the little dribble on the second goal and then on the third one he had the pass to morris that um i feel almost bad for morris that he didn't get that goal because he put a good shot on Talavera gets just enough of it to hit it off the post uh, and then it falls right to Ludero. But, you know, all three goals had, had things to like about them. Uh, but Rusnak really, you know, it's, it's, it's funny to think that, you know, he, he really didn't play much as an eight in RSL. He, he said today that he played a bit of an eight in Holland, which was like six or seven years ago. Uh, but this is effectively a new position for him. And to the degree that he, you know, he's been helped a lot by playing alongside Jao Paulo. And of course, Jao Paulo goes out of this game, leaving him as the sort of the veteran presence in the midfield. And, you know, I, Susie, what did you, what did you think of his, his play? Well, I have to like give myself a little pat on the back because I remember when we were talking about Rusnak signing and I said, one of the things I love most about him is he's a very patient attacker. And I thought that, I mean, I know you just wrote about this too, Jeremiah, like that's what he brought to the game is like the team needed to like take a breath and be calm in possession that allowed them to unlock the attack like it did. And that's what I thought Rusnak brought so much of. He could have easily tried to on their second goal, get a pass off that maybe wasn't a hundred percent there, but instead he, pauses, turns, finds, um, I think Alex first or Christian first, one of the rolled ons Christian, Christian first. Yeah. <laughs> then finds Alex. Um, uh, I just, yeah, I think that's exactly what the game needed. Yeah, it was, I don't know. It was any, anything else from the gameplay, Dave, that stuck, stood out to you. Was there anything that you really liked as far as either what the Sanders were doing offensively or defensively? Uh, I thought Steph Fry didn't have to do a ton in this one, but he he made two great saves, only one of them which counted. Uh, one got luckily disallowed for an offside, which was a very nervy moment. I think that was in the first half, wasn't it? I think uh, I think what was interesting was uh, during our preview, we talked so much about uh, Deneno and his effectiveness. And the limitation of fouling in dangerous spots combined with, um, well, Kellen Rowe basically limiting service meant that if the Nano didn't touch the ball, he wasn't going to change the game. And he had been, I mean, he was the best offensive player in the tournament. He, he got that consolation trophy and did not look excited to <laughs> be not. handed that. <laughs> he did not. And they somehow limited him finally. Um, and it was it was just great work from from the fullbacks, from uh, both wingers tracking back to to control uh, 
Pumas in the attack. It, that worked so well. And since they are uh, so cross-centric, once you eliminate the cross, uh, they, you know, their plan B is, you know, cross from the other side, but they didn't have that. So um, they looked rather ineffective. And then once they got desperate, you know, down two, um, I think things just got away from from Pumas. Yeah, Dineno was limited to two shots. One of them was a free kick uh, from from a dangerous spot, but uh, you know, outside the box, obviously. And then he had a, yeah, I guess he had a decent look from inside the box that was blocked. Um, but yeah, the Sounders did a great job of denying him service. It was, you know, he was definitely the person who I was most worried about coming into this game, and and he, you know, he he was very, you know, pretty ineffective. Uh, by contrast, Rui Diaz had seven shots. Uh, to give you a sense of of the difference in in how involved they were, um, but yeah, it was it was a great it was a great performance. I, I think the other thing that struck me about this day was afterward and the parade of coaches, players commentators everyone else that took time to like go address ECS and if, and the fans in general and I, I I don't know if we always appreciate how how rare it is for like I'll, I'll focus on on Garth for a second Garth is the most successful GM in MLS history I think is maybe not even a controversy maybe Bruce I guess you could argue is more successful but Garth is among the most successful GMs in history. He could he could choose to work anywhere he wants, I would imagine. And he the thing that keeps striking me is how uh how it, how much he exposes himself. You know, like the the thing where he like I, I was kind of playing on his his little uh immortality thing. But that speech that he gave before the Miami game, my understanding is that was basically all him. Like he just wanted to do it. Uh, and how like, and it's not so much that he's like seeking attention. It's like, he's just enjoying this. He enjoys sort of the showmanship of this, but it's not in a, you know, look at me sort of way. It's in a, we're having fun here. Uh, and I, and I, and I think there's like a genuineness to it that, I don't know if we always appreciate in part because it does feel so genuine and, and you see that throughout the organization, the like Casey Keller, here's a guy who, you know, is a legitimate U S national team legend and the stadium's effectively empty and he's going out to the crowd and he's, you know, a crowd of people who I'm sure he's aware have maligned him uh, for his commentating over the years. And he's just like saying, thank you. And he's and it. And it does seem like, you know, it's, it's a virtuous cycle and it's obviously a lot easier to do this stuff when you're winning, but it's, it, it's a, it's, it's a special thing that we have here. The connection, you know, Brian is fond of saying the, the team or the, the club is the connection between the, the club and the player and the, and the fans. And I, it's just amazing to me the, the way it has all come together. It's hard to imagine another coach having the, like, this sort of relationship with the fans. It's hard to imagine another GM having this sort of relationship with the fans, even the owner, uh, the way that Adrian uh, cares so deeply about this team and, and that the players 
you know, a lot of players say how important the fans are, but it's, it's rare that the players go out of their way. I think to connect with fans the way that, you know, like a Steph Fry, uh, the, like, I just love the, that image of him sitting by himself on the ferry and then walking to the game. It's just so, it has a very like Pacific Northwest vibe to it. And that he has the, like, I don't know how many, how many fan bases would just happily let their star goalkeeper uh, mind to keep to his own business that way. Uh, like we're and, not going to bug him because it's a really important game. Yeah. Kind of also, yeah. I, I'm pretty certain he left the stadium later than the ferries run. So at well, some I point, think we'll... someone, someone said that they, he was waiting for, he was like on the last ferry back, I think is what I, I heard. Cause there was a few fans that ran into him there, but. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, that's just another sign of like, how awesome is this region that, you know, he can walk, he walks onto a ferry as his transit to the greatest game of his life where he's taking home what three trophies and a medal. Yeah. Um, I hope you had a backpack. Just like, I'm going to walk back <laughs> on to get home. It's like, I, I just, that to me, just a, a nice sequence that the, there's just so many little moments around that. Like uh, Hanauer tried to avoid the locker room because um, he's generally that kind of humble owner that doesn't want to, you know, he hates being the center of attention. He says that every time he talks one-on-one um, on Nasadius or this podcast or whatever, he, he doesn't want to be the center of attention. And he tried so hard to not go in the locker room. And then Brian basically forced him in and the players wanted to include him in that celebration. Um, And normally, you know, the the stereotype of the owner is they're going to touch the trophy first. They're going to want the attention focused on him. And Adrian was the opposite. He, you know, I don't remember him getting up on the trophy thing, the, the stand as part of the celebration. I think similar to Brian, he was off to the side. Um, hanging out with the suits and celebrating rather than solitary. But, you know, he did his best to avoid the attention. And then the coaching staff and players were like, no, nah, that's not going to work. You need to reek of champagne. Yeah. Uh, you know, and another little thing, and it's not, it's actually not little. Uh, it's actually kind of, kind of big. Uh, little in that it didn't get a lot of attention, but I think it's a pretty telling thing about this organization. Uh, there's a there's a thread on Twitter that I will mainly just recommend that you go find because I don't think I'll do it entire justice, but I'll, gi- I'll give you a little recap. It's from uh, Sean Wheeler, who is one of the, I think he's still currently one of the presidents of ECS. ECS co-president. Okay, so yeah, yeah he, he the, basically what happened was ECS hung some banners uh, and it said Emerald City supports trans kids, uh, which you know, in Seattle, especially, I don't think it's a particularly controversial message, but CONCACAF felt pretty strongly about uh, removing it. And so someone from CONCACAF asked him to remove it and they said they aren't going to do it. So uh, CONCACAF basically went to the Sounders front office and asked someone else, someone, uh, Taylor Graham to remove it. And Taylor Graham went over to ECS and told him what they had told him. And basically asked them, you know, like said, if you want to remove it, you can. And they said, well, we don't want to remove it. And so he he left him alone. And then CONCACAF came back and said, 
we're going to cut these down. Is that okay with you? And uh, they said, no, it's not okay with us. And they left them up. And in the end of the day, they stayed up. And it was a little thing, but it's a big thing. And I think it, it speaks to the culture of the club. It, it speaks to the relationship between the front office and the fans. Uh, you know, there's not, I don't think there's a lot of uh, VPs and MLS that have the sort of relationship with their uh, supporters groups, the way that Taylor Graham has with ECS and that they could sort of talk through this all. And, and at the end, it was an outcome that ECS could be proud of. I think that the Sounders should be proud of and CONCACAF can kick rocks over it. I think this is something that probably all of us have written about in some capacity at some point in the past. I, I know I, in various different ways, have written about it multiple times. I touched on it a little bit in the piece that I wrote before the game on Wednesday. But in that piece, I suggested that sort of the, the connection to Seattle or the bond that players develop with this team and the city in this region is part of what allows a team to accomplish what the Sounders just accomplished. But the Seattle Sounders have always first and foremost been the Seattle Sounders. Like they are the connection to this place and the people who live here. I think that's part of why even in the earlier MLS days, when they were talking about wanting to be a global brand and have this global recognition, that didn't always ring, like that aspect didn't always ring true with people, but because you had a guy like Adrian Hanauer or Brian Schmetzer in the coaching staff and eventually Brian Schmetzer as the head coach, where these are Seattle people the connection runs as long as the team has existed that you know having local people on the team in the staff it breeds this sense of belonging that is why you have people stay here long after their playing days why a young kid named Freddie Montero comes here early in his career and then he leaves and he comes back to play for nothing effectively so that he can lift another trophy. Why Kellen Rowe comes and plays, you know, probably the, the last gleaming lights of his career for his boyhood club. <laughs> Again, for, you know, a pretty steep discount and gets to lift the first professional trophy of his career. Like I keep thinking about the fact that that was Kellen Rowe's first professional trophy. And I get emotional about it every time, but like this, the Seattle Sounders are a club in a way that teams like Liverpool or Barcelona or Ajax or these big huge clubs are clubs in that they are a part of the community that they exist in. And that is, you know, beyond other investment or where their money comes from. That's why those clubs exist. And it's why 
they get the kind of commitment from their supporters and their fans. It's why the Academy kids strive to reach their highest possible levels with those clubs. Like it is, it is a beautiful and incredible thing to watch and participate in. You kind of just hinted at this, but their early statements about wanting to be a global club and then they, you know, in this uh, a reband that they're exploring and this contraction to being more Puget Sound rather than Globe is actually lifting their global uh, posture at the same time. I mean, it helps when they're a dynasty that just keeps winning and winning and winning. But, you know, it's funny by pulling back from those statements about being a global club, they're becoming a stronger global club because they're connecting with people so authentically. Um, you know, there are these conversations that the players and coaches and front office staff have with fans um, create wonders. There are players scattered, former players scattered around the world that watch that game and spread the message because they didn't feel like they were just a mercenary even though they might have only been here for 18 months, they felt a, a real connection to the, the people of this place. And so they wanted it to succeed. And that was kind of interesting. Like you go through social feeds of people in Australia, South America, Europe, they were paying attention, you know, um, and they're sending that message. That, you know, that's my former club. That's my team. And they still feel that connection. Um, and that's a, it, it's been good to see like the, the strength of the connections um, that have developed are because it's a, uh, it's authentic. The, the, the best way to have a strong connection is to actually mean <laughs> every interaction have, have it have meaning. I know, um, you know, I messaged some of the people in the front office that we've worked with over time. And I was like, Hey, congratulations on, on the victory. And, she, and, the response was always a variant on that's your victory, Dave. Um, and I know Jeremiah uh, is similar, to, you know, 10, 12 years of these relationships. And they're not like, yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's no, it's, it's all, it's a, they, they reflect it back. And it's like, that's a community win. That's a win for every fan that was there and every other fan in the region. And we know, I think Fox FS1's numbers came out. And basically, like fifty percent of the people watching FS1 were in the Seattle Tacoma market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually not even um, you're not even exaggerating. I think there was three hundred thirty thousand people watching uh, FS1, which is a not a horrible number for them. Actually, that's actually I think one of their better numbers that they've posted this year. Uh, but like one hundred seventy nine thousand of those were in the Seattle market. That's literally half the half the audience. Um, I don't know if I've seen final numbers, but it looks like it will be somewhere between one and a half and two million uh, viewers in English and Spanish. Uh, in part, the main, the biggest uh, portion of those watching on Unamas, which is of course an over-the-air channel, um, it was, and and I think that it too was a good reminder of why why the league is so excited about League's Cup and why I think Champions League is so much more interesting in, in a lot of ways. Because it it includes an audience that is not the same audience as MLS all the time, and one that is extremely passionate about soccer is extremely knowledgeable about soccer, and oh, you know, and I and I hope a lot of those fans, you know, like uh, one story that was relayed to me was um, 
some fans coming to the game wearing Puma's gear. And then around halftime, they went and bought Sounders gear. And, you know, I don't know that they, no one is going to say you should give up being a Pumas fan. And if you want, if Sounders are playing Pumas, feel free to root for whoever you want. But like, if the Sounders can be the uh, segundo equipo of a lot of uh, Latino fans, I don't think that's a bad thing. And uh, it's a, it was a special thing. This week was really special. Uh, and I don't, and I hope we don't lose sight of that. Um, but let's talk about FC Dallas. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Hey, I, I don't know that I'm going to do three questions this week here. My, yeah, that's my that's questions okay. would be like, how does it feel to not win Champions League? Well, that this is an interesting. We'll close with this, but what does this do for your expectations of the season? Does it raise them? Does it temper them? Does it the like? I, I don't know that the supporter shield feels particularly in reach right now. But is there any reason that the Sounders shouldn't aspire to win the Open Cup and, and MLS Cup? Is there any reason why? you know, we should set, like, I think we can be satisfied with just winning champions league, but it would still be like, it would still be disappointing if they were to lose in the first round of the open cup and then not make the playoffs. That would be a bummer. That would be a huge bummer. Uh, this is, I, I feel like this season has so much potential and that is part of what is so exciting about this, this, that they've already won this title. Yeah, I would be, I would be disappointed if they didn't make the playoffs. Absolutely. I mean, hey, it's pretty easy to make the playoffs. Maybe I say that as a Sounders fan. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I think your expectations should continue to be high for this team, especially now that they are starting to really gel. And um, obviously, losing Jao Paulo is just like gut wrenching. But um, you know, they have the mentality that they're winning every game, and that's their expectation. So I think that should be every fan's expectation too. I think in like in the UEFA champions league, sometimes you will see teams have a hangover after winning the champions league. But part of that is because you win the champions league and you've got like four games left. Like it's, it's much easier to have like, reached this emotional climax and then have checked out because it all happened over the course of a grueling, you know, nine month season or whatever it is. There's nothing from this team that makes me think that they're going to feel like the job is done, regardless of whether Joao Paulo is on the field or not. They, I don't think that this team feels like they're done yet. Um, I think they flexed the kind of depth that allows a team to perform incredibly well in open cup. We know that this team, when their attention is not divided to the extent that it has been can perform in the regular season and in the playoffs. I think the expectation should be greed. Like they should be going for whatever they can. Maybe supporter shield is out of reach, but I don't think there's anything else that they couldn't win. I, I think what's great about May is uh, we're going to see um, whether that, heck, I think it was Yedlin and Nagel, hella greedy. We're going to see by the end of May, we'll figure it out. Heck, in 10 days, we'll probably figure it out. Because if they want to make a supporter shield run, 
you got to beat Dallas and uh, can't remember the next weekend's game. Uh, Vancouver? The 15th? Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. If they beat Dallas and Minnesota and on this high, um, that's going to tell you that maybe they have something in them that can make a supporter's shield run, despite the fact that they lost an MVP candidate. But then again, we lost MVP candidates the last several years and kept winning, including taking a title without MVP candidates. So there's a chance there. The other thing is, you know, there are going to be six or seven games still remaining in May, uh, depending on the May 11th Open Cup game, which is basically going to be the C team. Uh, because you have to rest some of those guys, um, and you're not gonna you're not gonna rest them against Dallas and then play like Raul and Nico at Starfire against Although, the San Jose Earthquakes. Why not? <laughs> no, they should. I mean, you could, but they shouldn't. Uh, particularly Nico. Um, so it'll be just you know, it doesn't get easy for Schmetzer. He basically has no time. They're they're in two match weeks. If they win May 11th, they're in two match weeks every week of may um it's a it's a rough schedule and the good news is the depth they developed uh, you know josh tensi was healthy danny lave is present uh reed baker whiting uh, has been playing well when he's with defiant it's like all of a sudden you're like all this depth that got tested last year and that got used in the Concacaf champions league uh you're going to see it on display because that's going to be who has to carry them through may um, and it's a great thing that they have Raul, Jordan, and Nico, uh, best 11 quality players, Christian Oldon. I mean, heck, you look at that list of the CCL team of the tournament. Was it seven or eight Sounders on it? Seven, I think. But even without Jao Paulo, there's still seven other Sounders that were the best of the tournament. So those guys... When you have that much uh, roster diversity and then you have the depth of Obed, Josh, Danny, uh, Freddie and Will are basically rested. So there's just a lot of things that are really interesting to be able to watch them watch Schmetzer and essentially the uh, the training staff uh, be able to do because we're going to see guys like Joe Hafferty um, <laughs> play competitive minutes in a Sounders uniform. And I don't think anybody else outside of Wade Weber and Joe Hafferty think that he'll be key to the season. And yet um, if they're going to be greedy and win two or more trophies this year, you're going to need Danny Leva, Reed, Ethan Doubler when he's healthy about midway through the season, basically that you uh, Jordy Delem about to like it's it's all these names are gonna get played because they have to it's gonna be uh i i haven't had a chance to confirm this but my suspicion is the sounders have already used more uh more players in in champions league than any other team did and they i know they've used the most i think they've used the most players in mls already it's going to be, you know, this the 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 strength of this roster is going to be tested, but that's also the why you do this, right? You uh if you want to compete on multiple fronts, you have to be able to build a deep roster and, you know, we're going to find out just how deep this team is. Uh, you know, the first big big test this year was Inter Miami, didn't go 
didn't go real well, but didn't go as that horribly either, if we're being honest. Uh, but it'll be an interesting, it'll, it, there's, that's what, I don't know. It's just, what's crazy. Like the center still have two thirds of their regular season games to play. <laughs> they have 27 games left. Yeah. That's it's so, it's so weird to be on such a high and then be like, <laughs> we still have so much soccer to play. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, Brian today was asked like, how worried are you about, like, have you started doing the math to figure out how you get back into the playoff race? And he's like, no. Like we got so much, there's no, it's like, we got to start winning some games. That's what we got to do. And I think uh, that's, that's one of the funny things seeing people talk about like how bad the Sounders have been in regular season. And it's like, you're talking about two games, like two games were really weird in the first two games of the season. And then since then it's two games, like you're talking about two bad games and the Sounders regular season is trash. It's interesting, too. I know they started on such a historic run last year, right? And I think Schmetch actually actually mentioned this in a recent podcast. They got lucky in some of those opening matches last year that they had kind of no business drawing or winning. And then they got unlucky at the end of the season. And I would certainly want the luck to fall their way more toward the end, building to the playoffs anyway. So, Yeah, I mean, if you want to take a – if you really want to be, uh, you know, take a – a galaxy brain look at this the sounders what they only got i think three points in their last six games last year and they're on they're on seven points through seven games so like they're they're on like the same they're like on a better pace at the beginning of this year than they were at the end of last year they still ended up with 60 points why not like we get so spoiled because they've never finished worse than fourth in the west so now that there is an extended struggle we there's this kind of overreaction because we've had so much success and i think that maybe the champions league will remind people that this is a rather good organization from ownership right down to the players that were in stadium celebrating with raul like it's a it's connected uh throughout and maybe you know being the first MLS team to win the continental championship in this style should remind people that we're blessed here. We, it's not the Seattle Mariners or New York Red Bulls. Um, It's a team. Well, New York at least makes the playoffs, but you know, the Red Bulls are still don't have an MLS cup and they've been around since day one. Um. (laughs) You know, it's a, we got two and we make finals all the time. What was that? Somebody pointed out, I forget who, who pointed it out, but basically there are only three seasons that the Seattle Sounders haven't made a cup final. So that would be, must've been 13, 13, 15, 18. So, wow. Yeah. And then 18, they made the, I think the Western conference final, if I remember correctly, like it, even that bad year was still a decent year. And we were well, they in had between. The, they had the record winning streak in 18 and they also had the best half season in MLS history in 18. Yeah. Uh, Most but, teams kill for the Seattle Sounders bad seasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, and now we're not going to have a bad season because even if they bomb out of the open cup in a week, 
even if they miss the playoffs, what we just what we just saw is I don't know if it'll make up for it, but you know that's the type of feather in your cap that never goes away. Like if that's Kellen Rose' only trophy ever, that's a damn good one. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it is. But that's probably a good place to end this episode of the Center at Heart podcast. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, we will uh, get back to our normal non-Champions League-fueled podcasting soon enough. Uh, but for now, I'm Jeremiah Shan signing off for Dave Clark, Tim Foss, and Susie Rance. This is the Center of Heart podcast, and we will catch you next time.